Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. And in this episode, we are bringing you an episode we recorded a couple of years ago with Chris Ralston, who's an epigrapher, uh, someone who studies texts written in ancient hard material. And uh, we're talking about the alleged Isaiah seal. And I'll leave it at that. You'll You'll get a sense of the discussion and the discipline of epigraphy. And uh, Chris Ralston is just a world-class epigrapher and someone who has a lot to say on this subject. And I think you'll enjoy the discussion in the spirit of what we're doing here on the Biblical World Podcast. And as always, we'd appreciate if you could give us a rating or review on iTunes uh, to help people find us and to continue to help get uh, this new podcast off the ground. Thanks for all your support in this last year as we we uh, just launched this year, and it's been a lot of fun, and couldn't have done it without you. So thanks so much. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone, to this special edition of the OnScript podcast. We're here today to figure out if archaeologists have, in fact, recovered the body of Isaiah the prophet, or perhaps it's you know just his seal or an impression thereof. Uh, with us to discuss this fascinating question is Christopher Ralston, Associate Professor of Northwest Semitic Languages and Literatures at George Washington University. He's the author of Writing and Literacy in the World of Ancient Israel, um, and an edited volume is coming out at the end of this month called Enemies and Friends of the State, Ancient Prophecy in Context, and that will be published with Eisenbrons. And he has a book coming out hopefully next year called The Art of the Scribe in Israel and Judah, The Script of Iron Age Hebrew Ostraca. Christopher, welcome to OnScript. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, uh, Drew Johnson's with me as well today on the podcast. Hey, Drew. Hello. How's it going? Uh, going okay. Thanks. I just ran across town because uh, I got the uh, time time change a little mixed up. So I'm a bit out of breath for this interview, but very excited to be um with uh, Professor Christopher Ralston today. So first of, first of all, Christopher, I'm wondering if you could describe in rough outlines what it is that you do, and in particular, your areas of expertise. So pretend I'm, I'm someone next to you on, on the plane. You're traveling somewhere. I'm a non-expert in the field of biblical studies. Don't really know what any of this stuff is. How do you describe what it is you do? In essence, uh, my work is predominantly in the field of Hebrew Bible, uh, and especially Hebrew and Aramaic, but also Greek and Latin as well. And then I also work in languages such as uh, Ugaritic and Akkadian, Moabite, Ammonite, and in particular, I work on ancient inscriptions in all of those languages. Those inscriptions date primarily from the second millennium and the first millennium BCE. Okay, um, so you're you're sort of between uh, biblical and extra biblical studies. So, um, w- when you talk about inscriptions, what are you, what kinds of things are you are you talking about? In essence, and we can talk in particular uh, because of the date for this bulla uh, about the first millennium BCE, especially the first half of the first millennium BCE. In essence, uh, there were scribes associated with kingdoms such as Israel and Judah, Moab and Ammon and Edom who were writing, and actually they were quite prolific in the writing that they did. Uh, often this would be on a potsherd uh, in ink, and that would be called an ostrichon, uh, but sometimes in stone as well, sometimes even on metal, uh, scribes would inscribe things. And also there's the phenomenon of seals. Seals are mentioned in the Bible, they were often worn around the neck, and whenever someone 
in essence, it was part of a contract, for example, they would take out their seal and press a soft lump of clay with it, and that would leave an impression. Seals were written in mirror image or inscribed in mirror image. And then that would indicate that you were party to that agreement. And it's a bullet that's been found. Uh, that's what we refer to the name that we use to refer to that clump of clay that was impressed long ago by a seal. And can I jump in here real quick? This is Drew. Um, so there's there's been a string of these bullae found, um, especially in this one site in the city of David in the Ophel in Jerusalem, right outside of the uh, old city walls if you've been to Jerusalem. So I'm thinking in particular of Elat Mazar um, and others who have found like the Yuchal and the Pashkor uh, seals uh, and then the Hezekiah uh, seal as well. And now this third one. Maybe for our listeners who haven't really thought about how archaeology and text intersects, or sorry, not intersects, they they <laughs> the Freudian slip there, Drew. <laughs> they intersect. I've been having lots of conversations and lots of fronts these days. Um, but how uh, how these two things intersect? Um, could you give us like a, a a thumbnail approach to why it's important that these things were found and what what they have to tell us about uh, the Hebrew Bible and maybe even textual transmission? Sure, absolutely. So it makes perfect sense, of course, that many inscriptions would be found in Jerusalem. It was the capital city of Judah. Uh, and so it's predictable that a lot of officialdom sorts of activities would occur there. And so we do have a fair number of bullae. So, for example, several decades ago, Shiloh found more than 50 of these bullae, and they continue to be found, sometimes in small numbers, sometimes in larger numbers, we also have a fair number from Lachish as well that were found uh, several decades ago. And, of course, Lachish was very important for Judah as well. So these, these sorts of inscriptions are tangible indications of the activities of primarily elites in Judah during the period of the, uh, the monarchy in Judah. Can, can I uh, just follow up? Sorry, Matt, um, real quick. You, you just said it's for the elites in the monarchy, so just could you finish the thought as to why these connect us to the elites in these societies? Yes, absolutely. In essence, as Ben Sira said many centuries later, a Jewish scribe of Jerusalem in the early 2nd century BCE, in essence, people who were pastoralists, people who were agriculturalists, blacksmiths, potters, don't really have any need for literacy, for learning how to read and write. In essence, therefore, the people who were engaging in activities that required reading and writing were primarily the elites. Those are the people who actually had the capacity and the need to actually read and write. So when we find inscriptions such as this, uh, these are products of officialdom. So, for example, seal makers were highly trained elites, and so a bulla made from a seal is, in essence, a product of of elite activities. Some people will differ with that. Some people would like to see literacy widespread uh, in Iron Age Israel and Judah, and uh, I just don't find the evidence for that to be convincing at all. So I look at these as, as products of officialdom. People who were buying and selling needed to have written records uh, of such things. Are you for the the some people that want to make this a little bit more a more literate culture? Are you talking about to the the studies in Arad? of the ostraca there? Well, 
Uh, no, more more broadly, I'm thinking of different scholars. As for the uh, the discussion of the the Arad Ostrica, I'm an epigraphic consultant for that project, and uh, one of my concerns about that was it seemed to suggest that literacy was indeed growing very rapidly, and uh, one of the problems with uh, that study was that the indication that the authors uh, or the, the the thrust of the proposal of the authors or theory of the authors was that evidence from Arad uh, demonstrates that we have widespread literacy uh, and that it's growing. Uh, one of the things that you have to know to be able to say that is how widespread literacy was before, and, and that wasn't done as part of that study. So it's hard for me to, mm. to sort of concur with the assessment that literacy was growing if one doesn't look at at least two time periods. Mm. But I have other concerns as well. But yeah, some people have suggested there was widespread literacy. That project is one of the more recent examples of that. But it's been a long discussion that's been going on for decades. Mm. And I, in essence, feel that literacy is something, as Ben Seaver suggested 2,000 years ago, 2,200 years ago, uh, that's primarily confined to people who are elites, that is to say the blacksmiths and the potters, uh, they don't need to know those things, uh, but scribes do and those connected with sort of uh, elite culture, elite activities have to be literate at some level. If, if, if I could jump back to the um, Bula for a moment here, um, the uh, just so I can picture this in my mind, so, we, so we've got a, a, a potentially a, a, sh a short document written on what kind of material would it have been wrapped up with and then sealed? Like, is this uh, parchment or um, what is it that's being um, tied up and then sealed with this um, impression? Right, good question. So in essence, with regard to, to uh, sealing practices, basically if a document was drawn up, the scribe would have drawn it up, and it would have been written normally on papyrus. Vellum could have been used as well, but that was very expensive. Papyrus was very economical, so normally it was used. After the document was drawn up, there would be an open copy uh, that was kept for reference, and then there would be a sealed copy. We actually have reference to this in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, this sort of phenomenon. And the sealed copy would be tied up, in essence, with a string, and then pieces of clay would be attached to that string, wet clay, and then those would be impressed with the seals of the people who were party to that agreement. And, of course, the way it works is that the, the more consequential the agreement uh, the larger the number of seals. And if, in terms of the types of documents that would have been sealed, it would have been things such as this, you know, purchase, sale of commodities or slaves, for that example, as well. Uh, the purchase of a house, an adoption, a marriage, a divorce. These are the sorts of documents that would have been sealed. And so what we have with this bulla is, in essence, a component of that process of sealing uh, a document in antiquity. Okay, so um, l let's get then to this this find. Um, so, you know, bearing in mind that not everyone that listens is kind of familiar with this with with this world, wh what is it that's been found um, by the uh, Elat Mazar um, excavations in Jerusalem? And could you just outline in brief the debate surrounding this seal impression? Sure. Uh, in essence, uh, there have been a number of seals, uh, as we 
noted that have been found in Jerusalem through the decades, including a number by a lot. Most of them quite mundane in nature. But with regard to this one, it was contended, Elat Mazar contended that it may very well be the seal, uh, it may have been a bulla made from the seal of Isaiah the prophet. So this garnered a lot of a lot of attention. But I have some concerns about that proposal for this bulla. Mm-hmm. Could you um, say what's on the seal that we know for sure, and then and then some of the the debated aspects of it? Right. The seal consists of three registers, and a register just means basically a section. The top register of this doesn't seem to have any words on it, but rather just imagery, and there will be debates about precisely what sort of imagery is present there. It is broken at the top. We don't know with certainty what was on that top register, but it doesn't look like there was any writing. On the second line of the register is the preposition Lamed followed by a personal name, and that personal name is Isaiah. And then the third uh, register contains the letters N-B-Y. So that's what we have. In essence, on the second register, we have the name Isaiah, and on the third register, we have NBY. So it, it says Isaiah on it. Isn't that a clear-cut case? Right. And I think many people would assume that there was just one Isaiah. Uh, people make the same sort of assumption with regard to Yeshua, with regard to Jesus, that there was just one Jesus. In neither case is that correct. That is to say, in the Hebrew Bible alone, we have about 20 different people with the name Isaiah or a variant of it. And so the first thing that I would emphasize really strongly is although we might really wish that this is Isaiah the prophet, the fact of the matter is that that's a really common name. Because if we have 20 references in the Bible to people, different people with the name Isaiah, surely there were hundreds and hundreds of people who lived during the Iron Age who had that name as well. Because the Bible just gives us a very small fragment or fraction of the number of people with this or that name. So that's my first concern, uh, is that we, in essence, don't assume that there was just one Isaiah, because there were many people with that name, even in the Bible itself, some 20. Yeah, and we know from uh, Isaiah there were three Isaiahs. (laughs) I was going to make that joke. Um, Okay. It's not just the name, though, that uh, is important here, Isaiah. Uh, Obviously, there's lots of Isaiahs today, right? Um, But uh, it's that third line, right? The uh, Navi, not not Hanavi, but just Navi with the cutoff at the end, which I just want to point out, this is a perfect archaeological find because there's just enough there and just enough missing to give everybody something to talk about. (laughs) Right. Well, it is tantalizing. That's absolutely the case. And so we have those letters for sure. There's a clear noon, a clear bait, and a clear yod. That is to say an N-B-Y. Elant Mazar suggested, she didn't definitively state, but she strongly suggested uh, that this may very well be a bulla made from Isaiah the prophet, and she suggested that that third register, uh, that is to say the second word that we have, actually can be restored as the word prophet, which would be fascinating. The critical word there, though, is restored, because to get the word prophet, you have to have the letter Aleph. And it's not there. And so what I would say is no Aleph, no prophet. <laughs> <in essence. laughs> so so is, um, is there enough room 
on the broken seal, if we were to reconstruct the rest of the seal, is there enough room for an olive there? The seals were made uh, in various sizes, and uh, if, yeah, sure, there, there would be enough room, presumably, or at least theoretically, for an olive, but I'm not sure there ever was an olive there. In fact, I, I, I don't think so. I don't think that there was a letter after the yod. So if if there's no olive there, then what are we what are we left with? How do we ex- how would you explain potentially? You know, what are the options for that for that um, third line? Well, you remember with me there's a there's a very famous city in the Samuel narratives uh, about David and Saul, the place named Nob, and in essence, uh, this would be a really nice way of referring to with a yod there. It would basically be a nice way to refer to someone from the city of Nob, something that could be understood as a gentilic. That's at least one way to understand that. And we actually have this very thing on one of the bullae that was found at Lachish, uh in the solar shrine. So we actually have this very uh, word, NBY, attested in a clear context from an inscription from an excavation at Lachish, and there's plenty of room on that bulla for additional letters, and they're simply not there. So, so we have what so, we have. We have the very same personal name. So that means it would be La uh, Yeshiahu Navi, which means um, Isaiah the Nabite. Right. In essence, you would have that or some variant of that. Uh, it could be also, if we, understand, if we understand there to be an omitted Ben, uh, that is to say, uh, mm-hmm. oftentimes when we get two names, it'll be uh, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And the word for son is, of course, Ben. But the Ben can be omitted. So we have a couple of ways that we could read this. We could read this as Isaiah the Nabite, or Isaiah, the son of uh, Nabi. And one of the fascinating things, and Kyle McCarter's emphasized this to me, is that sometimes a gentilic, something such as Nabite, ends up becoming, though it starts out as a gentilic, it ends up becoming basically a personal name. And mm-hmm. you may remember, for example, that the father of Zephaniah is said to be Cushi, the Cushite. Hmm. That started out as a gentilic, but ultimately it just became a standard personal name. That, that's probably what we have here. So, it, I mean, because otherwise, if it was the Nabite, you would you would still need the definite article, right? I'd still prefer Unless, it, and that's why that's why I think it's probably best to think of this as being analogous to the Zephaniah text, where you actually have a gentilic that's become a personal name. So um, I, I want to go back for a moment to something you said about the number of, of Isaiahs in the Hebrew Bible, because um, I, I did a quick search on that, and it wasn't an exhaustive one. And was your point that the, um, the, the, the yod shin Ion combination is, appears some 20 times, um, or that the actual full name... Yep, good question. So in essence, as you know, the, the way... If- Names are formed in the Semitic languages, including Hebrew and Aramaic, Phoenician, Moabite, Edomite, is that there will be, a, generally speaking, a Semitic root that forms the basis of it. And if we look at the, the Hebrew root, Yod Shin Ayin, uh, for example, in Brown Driver Briggs, uh, which I, I still use for this sort of reason, 
you'll actually see that there are about uh, 20 names in the Hebrew Bible that are based on that root word. So in essence, there were 20 people with the name Isaiah or a variant thereof based on that Semitic root. Because from the ones I looked at, and, and I, again, it wasn't exhaustive, um, it, it looked like, it, so with the, with the um, theophoric, you know, with the divine name ending, uh, Yahoo, in the Hebrew Bible, there's only, prior to the um, exilic period, there's only Isaiah of Jerusalem as the, the one with the theophoric ending. Is that, is that correct, or am I off there? Was there a pre-exilic, another pre-exilic Yeshiyahu? Well, there may have been. irrelevant? But, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think it's relevant. In other words, that root, uh, Yodshanayim, is a root that certainly existed in the early period in Hebrew. It's actually a common Semitic root, so it's attested across the Northwest Semitic languages. So it wouldn't be it wouldn't be convincing to suggest that it began de novo as a root during the exilic period, uh, and that Isaiah the prophet is the only person who could have had the name Isaiah uh, during that time period. In other words, this is a common Semitic root. It's pervasive across the Northwest Semitic languages. And the evidence in the Bible is relevant in demonstrating that we have lots of people with the name Isaiah. Uh, the time period during which any of those might have occurred isn't so much the point because the root uh, is an ancient Semitic root, even antedates Hebrew. And then it continues to be uh, used as the basis for, that root continues to be the basis uh, for roots, as you indicate, during the second, uh, you know, heavily during the second temple period. I think also... I would contend heavily in the first temple period and then heavily in the post-biblical period as well. So you see a fair number of references in Talalan's book on Hebrew personal names um, based on this yeah. as well. So, Yeah, one of, one of the ones that... pervasive. I, yeah. Yeah, one, one of the ones I thought was interesting was in First Chronicles 25.3, you have Yedithan's son, Isaiah, and it says that he he's a, you know, he's a, um, a singer, I think, but he's also someone who prophesies. So you actually have another, I mean, obviously it's from a later period, but another <laughs> yeah. another Isaiah who's a prophet, even. Yeah, that's a great point. And so, right, and that, that brings up the very important point that prophecy, we tend to think, was, a, was something that would be said of a very finite number of people, and yet, ultimately in the Bible, we have a fair number of prophets who don't have books named after them. Elijah and Elisha, of course, among them. But, right, uh, so the point you're making is, is well taken, namely that uh, even if it said the prophet, which it doesn't, even if the seal said the prophet, and it doesn't because we don't have the Aleph, uh, it, it wouldn't be an open and closed case that it was Isaiah the prophet known from the biblical text. Although the, if it did say prophet, I, I would have to concede that it's most likely that it's Isaiah the prophet. But, right, you know, we know the name of Isaiah's father uh, as well, and it was Amos, and so, yeah. Uh, so, right, there are all sorts of things that come into the, uh, that, that come to play with regard to this. Are there any other bullah that, um, that have a, you know, if it, if it were a prophet, that have a kind of a function or a, a position in that line after the name? Absolutely. In essence, we, we do get titles uh, on seals uh, from the Northwest, in Northwest Semitic, so from the Levantine world, 
Normally they do have the article, and of course that's missing in this case. And Elat Mazar's attempt to restore it in the second register just isn't convincing. There isn't there isn't space. So I think there really is no there is no hey there there is no the. Um, I I wanted to get in a question from my son because he was I was talking with him about this. He was eight, he's eight years old, and so he had, he had a question. Um, so he he's wondering. Who who all would have had a seal? Like you're walking around with a seal around your neck. Like not everyone is. They're they're elite people. Would a prophet be walking around with a with a a seal around their neck, or is it just royal officials? Or what? You well, know, he could have been a, like a, a, a notary public or something like that. You know, just a servant of the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good point. Drew, thank you. <laughs> yeah. 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 Good. Good question. Your son uh, is correct to ask the question. In essence, I think some prophets probably were literate, and some probably weren't. And as you would surmise and know, there's a very vibrant debate about that sort of thing. But I find it at least theoretically possible that there could be. Uh, you know, I find it theoretically possible that. Isaiah the prophet was literate, and again, if this word said, if this bullet said the prophet, that would be fascinating. Uh, but we just don't have it. And as, as I mentioned, the, the Aleph is is not there, and then the article isn't there. And we really would want the article. It doesn't have to be there. It's not a deal breaker. But the the absence of the article is a problem for reading this as a title. And then, of course, I haven't mentioned it yet, but the spelling of the word for prophet with a yod, which would be there mm. in internal mater lectionis, is also a problem because we have this this we have the word prophet attested at Lakish and it's not spelled with a yod mater, which is fascinating because Lakish is basically a hundred years after this Isaiah bullet and it still doesn't have the yod mater there. And we know that mm. The Odmaters were were much more common in the late seventh and early sixth century than they were a century early earlier. That is to say, uh, the fact that we don't have it in an even later inscription, we don't have the Odmater, makes it even more problematic uh, to attempt to to read that Yod in this Bulla as a Matir. In other words, there are all sorts of problems. We don't have the Aleph. That's a problem. We don't have the word Prophet. If we did have the word prophet, we'd want the article there on this bullet, and it's not there. If this is the word for prophet, we wouldn't want the yod there because it's not there later, and that would suggest that it wouldn't be present on this bulla uh, either, but it is present. All of that combines, uh, I think, to, in essence, make it most convincing that we basically have uh, a gentilic here Probably a gentilic that's come to be used as a personal name, as in the case of uh, the father of, of Zephaniah. And you, you might even have a, I mean, a further problem, which maybe Matt was getting at this, or we'll get it. But I'll just beat you to the uh, to the chase here. Um, okay, say that it is Isaiah the prophet, the one of Jerusalem, the one here attested to uh, the same, uh, related to the same text we have in Scripture. Um, what does that do for our understanding of prophets then, or at least, you know, at least this one Jerusalemite prophet that he has a seal hanging around his neck? Like, is he writing uh, oracles and then sealing them? Uh, I mean, does this kind of change or add a new complexity to our conception of what prophets did and how they operated? 
Yeah, right. Sure. What I would say is if is a mighty big word. And so the fact that we don't have the Aleph means that we don't have the word profit, of course, as you know. But it's a theoretical level. If this did have the Aleph, then we could talk about what this might mean for prophecy and literacy. That would be an inter- interesting discussion, but we just don't have it. What I, I, there's another point that I thought you were going for, and maybe you were as well, that I think is interesting. That is to say, if this were Isaiah the prophet, we actually have a seal that says Isaiah the prophet. <laughs> It's very gangster of them, isn't it? You know, <laughs> <laughs> it would be particularly hubristic from my perspective. Uh, some would say it's just a descriptor, indeed. But in the superscription in the Bible, uh, what we have is the name and patronymic in Isaiah one one. That's what I would have expected to hear, and we don't get that. I, so I think that even. Uh, even assuming, if one were to assume that this is the word prophet, it would be striking because it uh, it does seem uh, sort of hubristic for someone to walk around with a seal. That- and on the backside, it actually says, you know, Isaiah the prophet, the most humble and meek prophet ever to walk on the earth. <laughs> right. Analog- anal- analogous to the numbers text about Moses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean... Um, I- <laughs> That's why there's no definite article is because he's humble and said, Isaiah, a I'm just prophet. One. I'm just one in a I'm long line, a long line of prophets. But but I mean this this is going to I mean it, it, I'd be back to Drew's point about like there being enough information to tease but not enough to be conclusive. I think I think this is going to continue to generate conversation because. Um, one thing we haven't talked about is the proximity of this find to to the uh, Hezekiah seal, only ten ten feet away, and the fact that in Isaiah, you know, you have this interesting verse in Isaiah eight sixteen where he says, "Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples," um, which. Um, you know, maybe what happened is he asked his disciples to do it and they didn't do it. So he's like, fine, I'll do it myself. And then he sealed it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm going right. with the notary public right. thing. Well, um, yeah, there, there, there are lots of things that um, I'm sure are, are going to, you know, continue to be uh, brought up in, in this discussion. But I think to your point, there's, there's not enough to be conclusive about it. Um, and, you know, I think it speaks to the fact that even though it's not it's not like scholars really debate the existence of Isaiah of Jerusalem as such, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are a few that do, um, but I, I think it speaks to our desire to have some kind of material contact with these figures from the Bible. Right, and sort of that's the problem is that people desperately want some sort of tangible connection to a great figure of the faith, and so. That's the problem. In other words, because we desperately search for and desire for those sorts of things, we find them. We read an Aleph on the end. We restore an Aleph. When you could restore a Tav or a Tet or a Zion or a Lamed, in other words, there are lots of letters that one could restore instead of an Aleph, and then one, one would have a, a, you know, a mundane uh, personal name at that. Uh, and... So because there is this earnest desire to find sort of a tangible connection or a tangible relic, uh, as it were, quite literally, from some figure of the faith, a great figure of the faith, 
that great desire sometimes colors the the interpretation of people. And I think that that's what happened here. In other words, the cart got before the horse in all of this. In other words, the article from Elat Mazar foregrounds the figure of Isaiah. That's fascinating. It should should have, should have foregrounded the fact that there were lots of Isaiahs and uh, that there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for the the second uh, name namely either a gentilic or a gentilic that's become a personal name. And that wasn't foregrounded. Rather, there was an earnest desire to see this as being a reference to a figure whom we know from the Bible. And that required that an aleph be restored instead of several other letters that could have been restored. And it's that desire that people have that drives these these sensational interpretations. We saw the same sort of thing, uh, of course, with regard to the Talpio tombs a few years ago. We mm-hmm. saw the same sort of thing with regard to the Jezebel seal uh, a few decades ago. In other words, people often want to find something that connects with something that's near and dear. That's a natural human inclination. Because it's a natural human inclination, we need to foreground methodological caution and not methodological uh, speculation. (laughs) And I'm afraid that for me at least, I would have much preferred for the article to have foregrounded the fact, uh, foregrounded what we have, a personal name, uh, Isaiah that's fairly common, and a second uh, name or component on that third register that could be any number of things, especially a gentilic or a personal name based on a gentilic. And there are other options as well that I've mentioned as well. And with regard to even if we just have Nunve Iod, it may be something different from a gentilic. It could be an acro- a, a hyperchristic element, for example, as we have a number of. So I would have liked to have seen the article foreground a number of possibilities rather than foregrounding Isaiah the prophet because it prejudices the issue because it sort of focuses on our hopes, uh, our desperate hopes, rather than sort of a, a straightforward uh, reading of what we have. Well, and there are examples. I mean, I, th- I still think the Yukal and the Pashkor uh, seals are pretty phenomenal and that these are side characters in the story that you get from Jeremiah who are noted nobles, and, and we actually find uh, their seals down in the ground there on the side of uh, – the, the Jebusite. And so there's a great example. If you want something that like kind of uncontroversially connects you to the text, it's not sexy, um, but it's there. And I think what this hi- these, when these come out, these always highlight for me is, especially in the Christian world, how ill-prepared um, you know, pastors and Christian thinkers are to think through the epigraphical, the material, the etymological context that needs to happen in order to make a claim like, hey, we might have Isaiah's personal seal on our hands here. Yeah, I was, that, that's right. And so we do have times when something from the epigraphic record will connect very directly with the biblical narrative. The Mesha stila, of course, is mm. is one of the most striking and, and uh, among the very, very first uh, of that source. We definitely get that at times. And what I would say, though, is we have to be careful in this case not to restore a letter that's not present so that we can get the interpretation that we wish to with regard to whose this is. And uh, 
So in this case, the, the cart just got before the horse. We, we definitely have times when uh, there is an epigraphic text that connects directly with the Bible. And uh, Larry McEtuke has discussed that in the pages of Barr. And he, he's a very fine scholar and a good friend. And, and he's done that in a very methodologically rigorous way. And so I think it can definitely be done. It's just in this case, the restoration of an Aleph is one of a number of possible restorations. There were lots of Isaiahs. If it says the prophet, uh, you know, first of all, we don't have the Aleph. Second of all, it's spelled in a way that we wouldn't have predicted or wanted, uh, as it were. And so the foregrounding of the Isaiah, the prophet interpretation, is just a problem. And it's, uh, it, it's just not a methodologically savvy approach. I think the the savvy methodological approach is just just to say we wish that it said Isaiah the prophet or Isaiah ben Amos, but we don't have that. Well, uh, Christopher, we really appreciate you taking the time to discuss this uh, interesting and uh, much debated find with us, and we look forward to maybe uh, having you on again. It sounds terrific. Thank you very much for having me on. And uh, please don't be offended when we advertise the show on social media as we're going to talk to Christopher Ralston about the great discovery of the Isaiah seal. (laughs) No, that (laughs) certainly sounds fine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thanks a lot. You're most welcome. Take care now. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.